0: Former President Donald Trump is facing new charges related to his mishandling of classified documents and obstructing the investigation. It's Friday, July 28th. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is defending a controversial new law that weakens his country's Supreme Court.
1: You want an independent judiciary, you just don't want an all-powerful judiciary, which Israel uniquely has. It has the most powerful judiciary on Earth and any democracy.
0: Also, the trouble Peru's government has taking care of its ancient ruins. And this hour, some Massachusetts doctors are testing heat health alerts for at-risk patients.
2: Heat is the leading cause of death from natural hazards in the United States, and it is set to be an increasing
3: problem in the years to come as a result of climate change.
0: Sunny, hot, and humid today in the 90s. It's 7.01. Now the news.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Excessive heat is smothering about 180 million people in the U.S. from the southwest to the northeast. It could reach 113 degrees today in Phoenix. Tom Frieders of the National Weather Service says the city is setting heat records.
3: That continues with temperatures continuing to be forecast to be above 110 uh, into the first half of the weekend. Uh, We do have uh, increased RISK OF THUNDERSTORMS AS WE PROGRESS THROUGH THE WEEKEND AND
4: EARLY NEXT WEEK. THOSE STORMS COULD LOWER THE PHOENIX TEMPERATURE BELOW 110 DEGREES FOR THE FIRST TIME IN ABOUT A MONTH. PRESIDENT BIDEN IS POISED TO SIGN AN EXECUTIVE ORDER TODAY THAT CHANGES PART OF THE U.S. MILITARY JUSTICE SYSTEM. THE PROSECUTION OF SERIOUS MILITARY CRIMES WILL NOW BE TRANSFERRED TO INDEPENDENT MILITARY ATTORNEYS. That includes the handling of sexual assault cases. The prosecution decisions will be taken away from victims' commanders. The White House says the changes are part of a bipartisan military justice reform effort to better protect victims. The 114th National Convention of the NAACP opens today in Boston. From member station GBH, Paris Alston reports about 10,000 people will attend.
5: Boston last hosted the NAACP convention in 1982. National board member and regional administrator, Michael Curry, says this year's theme, Thriving Together, is about tackling issues such as voter suppression and affirmative action while celebrating black culture.
6: We will have thousands of people who will experience Boston. So I'm excited to have them immerse themselves in the history of this city, and we have business to do here.
5: Vice President Kamala Harris, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and rapper Meek Mill are scheduled to speak at the convention. For NPR News, I'm Paris Alston in Boston.
4: Ukraine says it has liberated a key village in the south as its forces continue a counteroffensive to push Russian forces out of Ukrainian land. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has more from Kyiv.
7: In this video, the Ukrainian soldiers who liberated the village of stado hold the Ukrainian flag and say glory to Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky posted the video to his social media account with the message, Our South, Our Guys. stado is north of the occupied port city of Berdyansk on the Sea of Azov. The capture of this village brings Ukraine closer to one of its main counteroffensive goals, to reach the Azov Sea and cut off Russia's land route to occupied Crimea. That would make it very difficult for Russia to resupply its troops. But Russia has heavily fortified positions in the south, and Ukrainian officials say they don't expect quick progress. Joanna Kessis, NPR News, Kiev. You're listening
4: to NPR News from Washington.
0: I'm Rupa Chanoi. This is WBR in Boston. It's already a steamy morning across the Boston area, and it's only going to get hotter. It'll be in the lower 90s today. The humidity will make it feel like it's closer to 100. A heat advisory remains in effect, and cooling centers will be open later today in Boston, Worcester, Lawrence, and other communities. This weather is tough for people who have to work outdoors. Francisca Sepulveda, is with the Massachusetts Coalition for Occupational Safety and Health. She says heat can adversely affect people, starting at around 80 degrees.
8: Always consider water, shade, and break. Some sips of water every 15 minutes, especially when it's super, super hot, like above 90 degrees. Always try to take a break in the shade where it's cool for like 10, 15 minutes.
0: Many people will turn to the beach or a pool to cool off, but in Boston, more than half of city-run pools are closed for repairs and renovations. That means people in neighborhoods like Charlestown, West Roxbury, Chinatown, and Mattapan have to travel farther to take a swim. City leaders tell the Boston Globe the repairs are necessary to make up for years of previous neglect. The MBTA is trying to diversify where it gets its renewable energy. The T is the state's largest consumer of electricity, and WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez reports the agency is working on its plan for buying power over the next few years. The T
7: currently gets its renewable energy through hydropower sourced from Maine. Under the next contract, the T is aiming to have 30 percent of it come from solar and wind sources within Massachusetts. The other 70 percent would come from out of state. Sean Donaghy is the T's manager for energy programs.
9: The reason we're recommending this mix of 30 percent and 70 percent is actually to bring us into voluntary compliance with the Massachusetts Clean Energy Standard. As the largest electricity consumer in the Commonwealth, we believe it's our duty to meet these standards and not just rely on the utilities to meet them for us.
7: The T aims to have the new power purchase contract in place by the end of the year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez.
0: People experiencing homelessness in Massachusetts may soon be able to apply for free identification cards. The state Senate passed a bill yesterday including that proposal. Officials say fees and documents can prohibit unhoused people from getting IDs. Under the new bill, they would only need to show they're receiving services from the state to get one. The proposal now heads to the House for consideration. It's 7.06.
10: WBUR supporters include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
0: The Red Sox will try to make it five wins in a row tonight. They'll take on the Giants in San Francisco. The Sox have won 15 of their last 20 games but they remain seven games back of Baltimore in the AL East. They're also a game and a half out of a wildcard spot sunny hot and humid again today it'll be in the lower 90s no threat of storms unlike yesterday clear overnight with temperatures staying in the 70s hot and humid tomorrow in the 90s again we could have storms in the afternoon and evening sunny and less humid on sunday with a high in the 70s right now it's 75 degrees in boston thanks for starting your day with wbur
11: for the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez in Culver City, California.
13: And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had an eventful week. His governing coalition defied months of protest to limit the power of Israel's Supreme Court, and Netanyahu himself went to the hospital to get a pacemaker. How is your health?
1: It's actually uh, very good, but uh, somebody said to me, I'm now the peacemaker with a pacemaker.
13: Netanyahu has been Israel's prime minister for more years than anyone in history. He was ousted amid a corruption trial, but came back at the head of a right-wing coalition. During a previous appearance on this program, he said he would not be following his most extreme allies.
1: They are joining me. I'm not joining them. I'll
13: have two hands firmly on the steering wheel. But the government's effort to weaken the courts has prompted half a year of protests. And when one of the proposed changes passed this week, protest leader Sheikma Bressler told us the right wing was driving the car after all.
8: Unfortunately, I have no other word by saying that he was lying to you guys over there.
13: Now, in response to protests, Netanyahu has dropped one proposal to let the Knesset vote to overrule court decisions. But he told us he would still like the other changes and says Monday's vote was a minor one the governing majority can now appoint officials or pass laws without the court rejecting them as unreasonable.
1: Now that we've passed it and we have the votes to continue legislating, maybe now we'll be able to get some uh, buy-in from the... uh, opposition. And I'm prepared to do that. We can find the middle ground and we should do it.
13: I understand what you're saying that you cast. This as a minor change, but it was a check on your power that did, in fact, check things that you wanted to do in the very recent past. For example, Arya Derry was someone who you appointed to the government who was rejected by the Supreme Court because he'd been convicted of tax fraud. So now that that check on your power is gone, will you reappoint him?
1: Well, the court didn't strike Derry's appointment down because it's illegal. It's a political question, and political questions are solved in elections. They said it we was unreasonable, right? Yeah, they said it's unreasonable, but they didn't say it's, it's not on grounds of any illegality, but on a ground of unreasonableness. Uh, we just had an election, and Derry was elected by a large, I mean, like almost half a million voters who thought it was reasonable. Well, we were so told that, that as
13: part of his sentencing that he committed not to return to politics, and there he was returning to politics. I could see a court finding that unreasonable.
1: Yeah, but uh, that, that's not the legal argument. If you want to say it, they have a non- hundred ways of saying it. They can say it's a conflict of interest. They can say uh, they, they still have a lot of checks. They can say this is undue process. You don't strike down an appointment simply by saying that it's basically subjectively unreasonable. You don't have that power.
13: Will you reappoint him then?
1: Well, you know, it depends what happens, of course, with the legislation. We have to see. But if it stands, um, you know, I expect it to happen.
13: The Supreme Court could still throw out the law that limits its own power. But if the law stays in force, the man convicted of tax fraud will come into a powerful government position. Netanyahu insists that he will not take another step. He will not use his majority's new power to interfere with the attorney general, whose office is overseeing Netanyahu's corruption trial, which is still ongoing.
1: Only one request, that we have live television coverage of the trial and I'll tell you, not merely because it's the best show in town, but because it lets the truth come out. I think That's you're saying that, that you
13: don't think that you need to fire the attorney general to win the trial. Is that what I'm you're saying? I'm
1: saying it's, it's not on the table and it won't happen. We have a trial. We have judges. They'll decide.
13: His opponents have cast this change in the law as a threat to democracy. No one person should have all the power, and this removes one check on his. Netanyahu insists he also favors democracy majority rule. In particular, the majority his coalition enjoys right now in the Knesset.
1: The larger question is bringing back balance to the three branches of government. In Israel, by overwhelming consent, people agree that the balance between the three branches of government has been taken off the rails in the last 20 years. And people want to bring it back.
13: I want to note though, uh, Prime Minister, you mentioned the three branches of government, which Americans will be familiar with from our system and which you know very well. There's the legislative, there's the executive, and there's the judicial. In Israel, as in many countries, the legislature and the executive are fundamentally the same. You are appointed by the legislature, and so the court is or was the check on your power. Isn't it concerning to remove that check or to weaken it, as I think you would probably
1: put it? Well, you don't want to weaken it. You want an independent judiciary. You just don't want an all-powerful judiciary, which Israel uniquely has. It has the most powerful judiciary on earth uh, in any democracy. And that doesn't bode well for the balance of power that we're talking about. Yes, you're right. In parliamentary democracies, the executive and the uh, legislative are mixed. Uh, But the, the balance has to be between these two branches.
13: The leader of another democracy urged Israel not to act in this way, President Biden. Israel's leader says it's Israel's business.
1: The decision ultimately is made in our democracies as sovereign states by our elected officials, and that's what is happening in Israel.
13: I think one of the reasons that President Biden raised concerns about Israel's security is that he would be aware that many Israeli reservists have said they will refuse to attend training when called. At what point does that begin to affect your national defense?
1: I don't think it's affecting our national defenses. It was very strong. And I, I think our enemies, who certainly don't understand democracy, like Hezbollah or Iran or others, don't understand that we can have moments of conflict and disagreement and protests and demonstrations in uh, democracies that do not bring down uh, our systems. But I'll tell you one thing. First of all, there you know there are a thousand or several thousand who voiced their uh, the reservists who voiced their opposition. Mm -hmm. Uh, You didn't hear about close to a hundred thousand who did the exact opposite, or that there was a demonstration of a quarter of a million uh, supporting the reform the other night in Tel Aviv. You just don't hear about that.
13: I'm glad you mentioned the counter-demonstration, Prime Minister, the other day, the the pro-judicial reform demonstrations, because it was noted that many of the people who are in favor of the judicial reforms are settlers in the West Bank. And I'd like to know if there is a connection here. Is part of your concern about the Supreme Court that, in your view, it has sometimes taken the side of Palestinians in disputes?
1: No. Part of my concern in the Supreme Court is that it is nullified often what are uh, democratically, uh, the the will of the majority on many things. I don't think this is so much a a left-right division divide in the sense of uh, settlers and so on. It's really the question of who makes the decision in a democracy.
13: Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, it's a pleasure talking with you again. Thank you, sir. Thank you. He spoke near the end of a week in which Israel's parliament, the Knesset, voted to remove one of the checks on its power.
12: who controls the southern border? The state of Texas and the federal government are in a battle over that very question. Governor Greg Abbott ordered the installation of a floating barrier in one section of the Rio Grande near the southwest Texas city of Eagle Pass to try and stop migrants from crossing into the U.S. from Mexico. The Biden administration this week filed suit demanding the buoys' removal, citing humanitarian and environmental concerns. Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies takes us to the border
14: city, now at the center of this fight. Eagle Pass, Texas is sometimes referred to as La Puerta de Mexico or Mexico's Door. Now the community of about 30,000 people is in the center of a national struggle over shutting that door to illegal immigration, which Texas's governor calls an invasion and an ongoing crisis. No, sir, I do not see a war zone. Juanita Martinez is a retired school teacher and the current local Democratic Party chair, She says she's tired of her community being described as overrun by illegal migrants as governor greg abbott claims in fact martinez points out that illegal crossings in june plunged to their lowest level in two years
8: it's so funny because this narrative that that abbott puts out is totally bogus
14: martinez objects to the floating barrier It's 1,000 feet of large orange buoys anchored in the middle of the International River with a net underneath. It's the latest tactic in Abbott's Operation Lone Star, which also includes miles of razor wire spooled out along the riverbank and the heavy presence of Texas and out-of-state troopers stationed here.
8: Our whole city has turned into a militarized area. And, uh, you know, it also gives a bad impression of what Eagle Pass is. That's not who we are.
14: Critics have long questioned the need for the multi-billion dollar operation and its tactics. One Texas state trooper this month turned whistleblower with an email calling their orders inhumane. He said migrants, including young children, were being pushed back into the river and denied medical care and drinking water. Abbott's office denies this. And speaking recently on Fox News, the governor defended his operation.
3: Texas is the only governmental body in the United States of America that's actually preventing people from entering our country illegally.
14: But Jesse Fuentes, an Eagle Pass resident, says that's simply not true. He filed a lawsuit challenging Abbott's barrier before the Department of Justice did, arguing that Abbott's buoys destroyed his kayaking business. I'm just
15: one small business owner that spoke up
12: for an injustice that's being done to the river, right? Even their own troopers
16: are complaining about the inhumanity and, and that we've stepped over the boundaries of, of humanity.
14: Quintus's lawsuit is waiting for a hearing, but the Department of Justice is pushing for a preliminary hearing to quickly remove the floating barrier. Cal Gilson, a professor of political science at Southern Methodist University, says the law favors the Biden administration. At some point, I think Biden is going to win, but Abbott benefits every day by this fight with Biden, because he looks like, especially to his Republican base, as if he is defending the country and the state of Texas against illegal immigration. Gilson says every election cycle, the border is a major issue, and that Biden is seen as vulnerable on stopping illegal immigration. The buoys could once again float the border question to the top of voters' minds this election cycle. For NPR News, I'm David Martin Davies in Eagle Pass.
12: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Chanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, new heat health alerts being tested by some Massachusetts doctors aim to raise awareness among at-risk patients of dangerous temperatures. It's 719. Turn your old car into new
17: news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mefa, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at mefa.org. Francis
7: Haugen tried to fix Facebook's misinformation problem from within.
11: 300 people had spent a year preparing to make sure that there wasn't blood on the streets when the election came. When Facebook dissolved civic integrity right after the 2020 election, that's when I realized Facebook was not going to be able to change on its own.
7: I'm Tiziana Deering from Facebook Engineer to Whistleblower. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: The annual International Sand Sculpting Festival kicks off today at Revere Beach. Fifteen sculptors are competing for this year's prize. They can create their sculpture based on whatever they want. The festival runs through Sunday. Sunny and humid today with a high of 92. It only cools down to the mid-70s tonight, then tomorrow around 90 and humid again. Showers and thunderstorms are likely in the afternoon and evening. Relief from the heat finally comes on Sunday. We'll have highs only in the upper 70s under mostly sunny skies. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can learn about the wine, winemaker, and region, every purchase supports NPR programming. Available to adults 21 or older. nprwineclub.org. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
14: This
12: is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep.
19: And I'm Michelle Martin. You might have seen the statue in New York Central Park, or even that famous illustration in one textbook or another, a white man, one or both arms crossing his chest in that classic pose, celebrating the man known as the father of modern gynecology. J. Marion Sims was a surgeon who, beginning in the 1840s, began developing surgical instruments and techniques that helped women survive difficult conditions related to childbirth, especially fistulas. But what you might not have noticed in the picture, or even known existed, were the enslaved black women on whom Sims experimented, often without anesthesia. City removed that statue in 2018, but now writer J.C. Hallman has gone a step further and restored the women in the picture to their rightful place at the center of the story, especially one woman, Anarka. Hallman calls her one of the mothers of modern gynecology, and he's here with us now to tell us more about his new book, Say Anarka. J.C. Hallman, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
19: Your book is titled Say Anarcha, and I assume that that's a reference to the rallying cry that we have heard in recent years of demonstrators who want us to acknowledge people who have been unacknowledged so far. Tell us what you have learned about her. So... Anarka is a central figure
2: in the creation story of modern women's health.
19: And she
2: and two other women, Lucy and Betsy, and approximately seven others, were the experimental subjects of J. Marion Sims. And for a long time, all that anybody knew about Anarka, who was the most consequential of these experimental subjects, came from Sims himself. He was a very, very untrustworthy source. And so when I heard about that, I thought, well, can she be found? I was able to find out a lot more about this young woman who made this very significant contribution to the history of medicine, but then was largely forgotten by history.
19: Tell us a little bit more about why you say she was so consequential to these techniques and to the development of patient-centered medicine. What's
2: happening today in Africa, where this condition that Anarka and Lucy and Betsy and the others suffered from, obstetric fistula, this is still a crisis in the developing world. What happens when you're a fistula sufferer is that you are living with uh, women who have a similar condition, And you're learning to care for one another. And this idea traces all the way back to these original experiments that happened in Montgomery, Alabama. Sims had gathered these women together, had them living with one another in order to experiment on them. And what happened uh, is that a a kind of patient-centered model of care was pioneered. And that is the thing that is changing lives today in Africa. And so there is a clinical advance that came out of the Alabama official experiments, but it
19: owes nothing to Sims. I'm just curious about how you went about capturing the lives of women who couldn't write their own stories. How did you go about finding them? Because Anarka was a kind of
2: void, there really had to be a different kind of history that needed to be created in order to tell her story. And so in order to complete that portrait of her, I called on the slave narratives of the Federal Writers Project, which was part of the Works Progress Administration of FDR. And these are thousands, the voices of thousands of formerly enslaved persons that offer just an absolute treasure trove of details. So I called on, on those materials to give a sense of breath and life to anarchist story.
19: One of the things that's interesting about your book is it's kind of a, I don't know what to say, a, a dual biography. You go on this journey to find Anarka and the other women, but then you also go back and take a new look at J. Marion Sims. And In fact, the subtitle of your book is A Young Woman, A Devious Surgeon, and the Harrowing Birth of Modern Women's Health. You, you make it very clear that you do not hold him in high regard. I mean, I think
2: he's a monster. I mean, he, he really sort of molded himself in the vein of, of P.T. Barnum. And so he was primarily a self-aggrandizer. And what I wanted to do was to put the reader into his world, into his mindset, so that his true motives, his, his white supremacist mindset, his greed would become apparent.
19: Did anybody attack the ethics of this, of experimenting on these women without their consent and without even any effort to mitigate the pain?
2: it was understood that um, Sims was leaping to human trials um, much more quickly than, than other doctors at the time were. I remember there was one doctor in England who talked about how they were giving chloroform to pigs when they were performing experiments on pigs. And and it was he was saying that in order to criticize Sims for for not using uh, anesthesia on uh, enslaved women.
19: Well, you know, one of the things I found fascinating about your book, though, is that he experimented on these women in the 1840s and 1850s Alabama, Okay, when these women had no rights. But even despite that, you say that even at the time there were people who found his behavior abhorrent. Can you say a little bit about that?
2: Sims had many, many champions during his lifetime, but he he also had his detractors. And in fact, this story has become sort of controversial over the last few years. and and some people have um have been concerned that there's a projection of modern values into the past and in, in the reevaluation of of Sims' legacy. And that's just not the case because what that forensic deep dive into his career reveals is that Sims' greatest critics were, the people who knew him best.
19: What drew you to this story? You've written about a lot of things over the course of your career. Why this? To my mind, all writers of good conscience
2: are on the lookout for the kind of work that can make the world a better place in some way. And I think that is what resonated with me. I saw that this search hadn't been undertaken. I had the resources. I had the right skill set for that. I set out to do it. And the amazing thing was is that finding that first evidence of Anarka wasn't that hard. Somebody just had to look.
19: That's J.C. Hallman. His new book is Say Anarka, a Young Woman, a Devious Surgeon, and the Harrowing Birth of Modern Women's Health. J.C. Hallman, thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you.
0: This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. One of the biggest stars in the field of behavioral science has been accused of falsifying data into research about honesty. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin are in Australia today for bilateral talks aimed at countering China's growing influence in the Indo-Pacific region. Austin spoke about it while in Brisbane.
4: We've seen troubling PRC coercion from the East China Sea to the South China Sea to right here in the Southwest Pacific. And we'll continue to support our allies and partners as they defend themselves from bullying behavior.
3: Their meetings run through tomorrow and are expected to include a deal to provide Australia with a fleet of military submarines powered by U.S. nuclear technology. Congress has adjourned until September. When lawmakers reconvene, they'll have a few weeks to reach a deal to avoid a partial shutdown of the federal government. NPR's Susan Davis says House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has a lot of work to do with House Republicans balking at a bipartisan budget deal passed weeks ago.
7: He's backed himself into a very difficult negotiating position. He's going to both have to try to not shut down the government to make his moderate members look reasonable and like they can govern and win reelection. He's got to keep his conservatives happy so they don't try to throw him out. And he's got to try to pass a bill that can pass both the Democratic Senate and be signed by President Biden into law. It's a really difficult position. And that's why no one I spoke to this week was confident that a shutdown could be avoided in late September. This is NPR News.
0: This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Chinoy. A heat advisory remains in effect for nearly all of Massachusetts. Temperatures will get into the lower 90s today, and with the humidity, it'll feel closer to 100. That advisory will be in effect through tomorrow. People looking to cool off at the ocean need to be careful. National Weather Service meteorologist Joe Delicarpini says there will be a danger for rip currents today.
3: That's primarily a hazard on the south coastal beaches. So if you're heading down to, say, Horsenick Beach or any of the beaches in southern Rhode Island, those will be the ones most at risk. But if you're heading to some of the beaches uh, in eastern Massachusetts, say, Revere Beach, those areas, um, the threat of rip currents is much less.
0: That riptide advisory goes into effect at 8 a.m. and will last through the evening. State agricultural officials are still assessing the damage from last week's flooding. Adam Frenier reports those officials are working with farmers to figure out what crops may still be saved.
9: The UMass Extension, which works with local farmers, has been assisting those affected by the floods. The program's director, Clem Clay, says crops touched by floodwaters from rivers must be destroyed. But under state and federal guidelines, plants which hadn't flowered yet could be salvaged. And as far as crops impacted by flooding just from rain and not swollen rivers, Clay says...
15: Those pools of water are not subject to the requirement to destroy necessarily, and so there's much greater chance that they will be able to use those crops.
9: Clay says trying to get to fields to assess damage has been difficult since many are still too wet to access. He also says farmers are having to contend with disease affecting plants from recent damp and humid weather. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier.
0: Events at the NAACP National Convention kick off in Boston today. An opening reception tonight will include performances by local artists. Vice President Kamala Harris will give the convention's keynote address tomorrow. This is the first time in 40 years the convention is being held in Boston. The country's oldest and largest civil rights organization was founded here more than a century ago. It's 733.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax free weekend is August 12th. Hunter Douglas automated Power View shades at Innuendo Natick and
0: com. The Red Sox begin a week long road trip tonight as they visit the San Francisco Giants. It'll be sunny with a high of 92 today, with high humidity adding to dangerous conditions. Tonight we'll have clear skies and lows in the mid-70s. Tomorrow, around 90, with clouds gathering throughout the day. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms beginning in the afternoon and into the evening. Sunday, we finally get relief. We'll have a high of only 78. It'll be mostly sunny with a slight chance of afternoon storms. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR.
0: This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shenoy. That's the sound of kids playing in a splash park in West Roxbury yesterday as temperatures reached into the 90s. This kind of heat can be more dangerous for some than others, and the risks begin earlier in the year than most of us realize. WBOR's Martha Biebinger tells us about a pilot project here in Massachusetts and six other states that's testing heat health alerts. A half-dozen clinicians at Cambridge Health Alliance received
20: the first test alert on June 1st. The 83-degree day did not trigger an official heat warning, but in Boston, when temperatures rise past the mid-70s, heat-related hospitalizations and deaths rise too. An early heat surge can be especially menacing.
7: People are quite vulnerable because their bodies haven't yet adjusted to heat.
20: For Rebecca Rogers, a primary care physician in Somerville, that first email alert and another that arrived on July 6th bumped heat to the forefront of her conversations with patients. And the emails told Rogers which patients to prioritize.
7: Older individuals, outdoor workers, individuals with chronic medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or chronic kidney disease. Also young athletes
20: training on sweltering fields and people without air conditioning.
7: Okay. Go ahead, you go straight through there.
20: In the exam room, Rogers finds time to ask each patient whether they can cool off at home and at work. That's how she learns that Luciano Gomez works construction.
7: If you were getting too hot at work and maybe starting to get sick, do you know some things to look out for?
3: No.
20: So Rogers tells Gomez about early signs of heat exhaustion, feeling dizzy, unusually weak, or sweating profusely. She hands Gomez some tip sheets that come with the email alerts. On one, a color band from pale yellow to dark gold is a sort of urine hydration barometer.
7: So if your pee is dark like this during the day when you're at work, probably means you need to drink more water An interpreter translates
20: into Portuguese for Gomez who's from Brazil. He knows heat, but he has questions about the best ways to stay hydrated.
15: Here I've been addicted to soda. I'm trying to change to sparkling water, but I don't have too much knowledge on how how much I can take of it.
7: Sparkling water, you know, it was fine as long as it doesn't have sugar. It's totally good.
5: Rogers creates heat mitigation plans
20: for each of her high-risk patients, but she has questions the research doesn't yet address. Should patients taking meds that make them pee more often take less of the drug when it's hot? And Rogers would like more information about where to send patients who cannot afford an air conditioner or who don't have stable housing. Some of the biggest heat-related health problems occur overnight if the body can't cool down.
2: Heat is the leading cause of death from natural hazards in the United States.
20: This is Dr. Caleb Dresser, one of the people who sends the heat alerts.
2: And it is set to be an increasing problem in the years to come as a result of climate change.
20: Dresser works out of Harvard's Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment. Weather expertise for this project comes from Climate Central, an independent source of climate science data. Clinicians at 12 community health centers around the country are receiving alerts tailored to their location. At this point, alerts may only go out when the forecast shows the most excessively hot and humid days. Andrew Pershing with Climate Central says that's happening more frequently.
2: So what we're just trying to say is, like, you really need to go into heat mode now. It's going to be more dangerous for folks in your community who are more stressed.
20: The pilot has limitations. Clinicians at Cambridge Health Alliance are only discussing heat with the patients they see. The clinics don't have a way to flag all high-risk patients and send individual alerts. Early heat alerts for clinicians are new in the U.S.
21: This is a wonderful start, and I think these kinds of pilots are very important. Ashley Ward
20: runs the Heat Policy Innovation Hub at Duke University, where the medical center is looking at ways to add heat alerts to electronic medical records, but in a manner that doesn't overwhelm patients as well as clinicians, because research shows many people do not take heat warnings seriously. Ward says that has to change. This is not your grandmother's heat, so we have to accept that our environment has changed. This might very well be the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. And while Boston is just now in its first heat emergency of the summer, the season of increased heat health risks has been with us for at least two months. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: The new Barbie movie has been dominating the box office. It's already grossed more than half a billion dollars globally, and it's won critical praise. WBUR Cognoscenti editor Sarah Shukla saw the film at a drive-in movie theater with her family and old friends. Here's her take.
11: When my daughter turned two years old, my friend Margaret gave her a pink Barbie dream car convertible. You know the one. My daughter never really got into Barbies but that convertible traveled miles across our hardwood floors, ferrying Elsa, Batman, and countless stuffed animals. I wasn't that into Barbie either. As a kid in the 1980s, I had a He-Man castle, not a Barbie dream house. I'm just setting the stage because I loved the Barbie movie.
1: Hey, Barbie.
10: Can I come to your house tonight?
11: Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and planned choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. Margaret and I went to see the film together. We packed our kids and husbands into two cars and headed down the Cape to a drive-in theater in Wellfleet. We snagged two parking spaces five rows from the front. Two metal speakers hung from the yellow poles installed all over the parking lot. When we rolled in, they were blasting Barbie Girl. I'm a
8: Barbie girl in the Barbie world in plastic,
22: it's fantastic
11: you can Margaret told me the movie was rated PG-13 for existential angst. And I love that for Barbie. Life as a woman, a girl, and in different ways a man, is confusion, madness, joy, and myriad contradictions, often all at once. There's a monologue in the film when America Ferrera's character unpacks all the things women have to be. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear, never get out of line. It's too hard. It's too contradictory. And nobody gives you a middle or says thank you. And it turns out, in fact, that not only are you doing everything wrong, but also everything is your fault. As I listened to it, I was also up repositioning the speaker and coaxing kids to swap places and reminding them not to yell and doling out Pringles. I actually said out loud, I'm watching a movie about women doing everything while I do everything. I'm an adult with a job and a robust collection of Birkenstocks, but I still feel like a teenager sometimes. I'm still carrying around multiple timelines of myself, thinking, isn't this all supposed to make some sort of sense by now? I think Greta Gerwig understands that idea at a molecular level. There are toys that see us through stages of life, And then there are people, like my friend Margaret. We've known the late 20-something versions of each other and the bleary-eyed, early 30s new parent versions. Now, as we're entering midlife and our kids are at the precipice of being teenagers, we share a steady level of existential angst, but also a lot more. We're at a stage when life feels both deeply overwhelming and like all we've ever wanted at the same time. Seeing the movie together reminded me that there's a special kind of magic when a friend sees and loves all of you the good, the bad, and the just plain weird. I think those friendships help you hold all those versions of yourself, too. It's the messy both and of it all. And somehow, after all these years, Barbie gets this, too. I'm trying
20: to tell you something about my life
0: Maybe give me insight between black and white Sarah Shukla is a writer and editor for Cognoscenti, WBWAR's do. Ideas and Opinion page. Check out her essay Does and many more at WBWAR.org. Life,
20: seriously,
0: cause it's only life after all, yeah. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR's Morning Edition, GOP presidential hopefuls are heading to Iowa for the state Republican Party's annual Lincoln Dinner. Thirteen presidential candidates will be there, including a scheduled appearance by former President Donald Trump. It's 744.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious
0: diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. It's going to be another hot and humid day today. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce tells us that relief should come by late tomorrow.
21: A heat advisory remains in effect until 8 p.m. tomorrow now with another hot day in the way. Highs will be in the low 90s. Heat index values in the middle to upper 90s in spots. Hazy and humid, but a storm-free day today, which is a welcome change from yesterday. Tomorrow will be hot again earlier in the day, too. We have a shot at 90 by midday, then scattered afternoon and evening thunderstorms move through, and that's a leading edge of noticeably cooler and less humid air. Highs will be in the mid-70s Sunday with breaks of sun through a lot of clouds and the chance of a quick passing shower. It's 77
0: degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this
18: station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep in Washington, D.C. This next story begins with a basic truth. Academic research sometimes falls apart. The data don't hold up or results can't be replicated in further studies. People make honest mistakes. But there's also a bigger deal. Dishonest mistakes. Fabricated data. Nick Fountain from NPR's Planet Money podcast brings us the story of a massive scandal in the field of behavioral science.
9: Duke professor Dan Ariely is one of the biggest stars of behavioral science. A lot of Ariely's research is focused on how we can get people to be more honest. One of his solutions, prime people to think about honesty before you need them to tell the truth. Ariely tested this in a very clever way. Per paper, he partnered with this insurance company. Periodically, they sent their car insurance customers a form, asking them to report their latest odometer readings, and then at the bottom, sign that it was the truth. Ariely tried moving that signature from the bottom of the form to the top. And he said that made people more honest. Here's Ariely. Think about it. Just signing something a second before you fill the number, not you, other people, uh, (laughs) dramatically changes the level of cheating. And this is where the story gets weird. A few years ago, Yuri Simonson and his colleagues at the blog Data Collada, known for their investigations into research, got a tip. Something was fishy in Ariely's paper. So they took a look. So it was just self-evidently faked. Self-evidently faked. Here was the tell. Normally, you'd expect most people to drive a medium amount, say like 14,000 miles a year, and way fewer people to drive very little or a lot. But in Ariely's data, the same number of people drove around 1,000 miles as 10,000 as 50,000. It's just so, I've never seen anything
19: so blatant in my life.
9: It's just incredible. As far as smoking gun evidence goes, this this for you is like, it's this is it. Yeah, nothing will ever match this. Simonson's team wrote to the paper's original authors, told them they suspected the data was fake.
19: So almost immediately, Dan Ariely replied and said, just to be clear, I was the only person responsible for this in this team.
9: This meaning Ariely was responsible for getting the data from the insurance company, but Ariely wasn't taking responsibility for forging the data. He basically blamed the insurance company. His numbers, he said, came from them. Still, he and his co-authors retracted the paper. Now, for years, the Hartford, the insurance company, hasn't responded directly to Ariely's claim. But a couple of days ago, the company was finally willing to go on the record. They told us in a statement that they'd pulled the data set they'd sent to Ariely. And it looked dramatically different from the one in Ariely's paper. The company said that they had only given him data for about 3,700 policies. But in Ariely's paper, he cited data for more than... 13,000. I got the data file from the insurance company, Arieli said in the statement. Getting the data file was the extent of my involvement with the data. While we can't say with certainty who falsified the data set, the Hartford statement makes it clear the company believes the change occurred after it was sent to Ariely. Quote, though some of the data in the published study data is originally sourced from our data, it is clear the data was manipulated inappropriately and supplemented by synthesized or fabricated data fabricated data in a study about honesty. You can't make this stuff up. Or can you? Nick Fountain, NPR News.
18: Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness.
0: This
13: is NPR News.
0: Coming up at 825 on WBUR's Morning Edition, it's Friday, and that means StoryCorps, today a New York City animal welfare worker, remembers his time caring for dogs in Chernobyl more than 30 years after the nuclear disaster there. It's 7.50.
23: When Thomas Green went in for surgery to relieve pain in his legs, he was expecting it to be covered by his insurance. But a mix-up by the provider left him and his wife with a big bill.
8: My initial response
4: was, this is impossible, so something's
19: wrong. I'm Juana Summers, the fight
23: to fix those charges. On All Things Considered, from NPR News.
4: Listen today, starting
0: at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Former President Donald Trump faces new charges stemming from accusations he asked an employee to delete security footage amid a federal investigation. Ukrainian forces say they've reclaimed a southern village as their counteroffensive pushes into Russian-occupied territory. And the military leader of this week's coup in Niger claims the move was needed to prevent what he calls the gradual demise of the country. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use, alprime.com, and the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Ride the water shuttle to see art on both sides of the harbor. Tickets at
12: ICABoston.org.
0: Hot and humid today. It'll be sunny and in the low 90s. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News,
13: Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The top tourist destination in Peru is the Incan Citadel of Machu Picchu, high in the Andes Mountains. Not so well known is that the Peruvian capital of Lima also holds ancient Treasures, as John Otis reports, the city has so many pyramids and temples that authorities
16: can't take care of them all. Amid the hotels, banks, and busy streets of Lima lies a pyramid, thought to be about 1,500 years old, called Pukiana. It was a ceremonial site for the Lima indigenous group, which gave this city its name. On a recent morning, workers scraped sand and dirt from part of the site that remains unexplored.
24: So today, you are going to see the
11: result of 42 years of work. Please, we continue this way.
16: Blanca Arista, who is leading a tour of Puqueana, says excavations have been going on here since 1981. Pukiana now gets a steady stream of visitors. They marvel at the structure, which has withstood earthquakes, and enjoy views of the Pacific Ocean from the top of the pyramid. Among our group is tourist Manuel Larabure, a college professor who grew up in Lima.
24: very impressive. Yes, yeah, this is very impressive. And uh, to have it right in the middle of, of a city like this, I find that very unique. <laughs>
16: But until its renovation in the early 1980s, Pukiana was routinely looted and abused. At one point, a factory set up shop here and used its sand and clay to make bricks. Arista, our tour guide, says the pyramid was treated like a playground.
11: So unbelievable, but several groups were practicing motocross. So imagine different groups riding motorcycles or riding bikes.
16: Indeed, Lima's ancient indigenous sites have, more often, been desecrated rather than safeguarded. To find out why, I speak with Giancarlo Marconi, a Peruvian archaeologist. Why did Lima turn its back on these sites?
8: I think because we want to be a modern capital. You know, a
16: modern city in the world. And for he our. says some of the sites were bulldozed. That opened up space for streets and apartment blocks amid mass migration from the Peruvian countryside to the capital that began in the 1950s.
8: That make a lot of pressure over the city and we didn't have a good planning. There are
16: still about 400 temples, pyramids, and burial sites scattered around Lima. That is a huge number. And with Peru struggling to reduce poverty and improve hospitals and schools, the government can't afford to finance excavations or turn all 400 of these sites into tourist attractions. The result is that many sites have been left unguarded and have been colonized by squatters. Others have become de facto garbage dumps. One example is a pyramid called Infantas, which is hemmed in by the streets and houses of a working-class Lima neighborhood. So this is the ashes and the remains of campfires here on top of the pyramid. Trash is everywhere. I come across people smoking crack and a shirtless man digging up sand from the pyramid. Benito Trejo, who heads the neighborhood committee here, says that rather than a sacred site, the Infantas Pyramid is a
6: headache. He says
16: it's not a good thing because these sites are ignored by the government, which is supposed to look after them. But until that happens, some experts say surrounding communities must get more involved in preserving and promoting these sites. That's what's going on at a ceremonial site called Mateo Salado, a stone's throw from Lima's International Airport. Fifth graders here are drawing pictures of the ruins, which are part of their school logo. We shouldn't look at these sites simply as relics of the past, says one of the instructors, Andres Ramirez, they should be part of everyday society. That's what we are trying to promote. For NPR News, I'm John Otis in Lima, Peru. Air
12: travel can often be a hassle but for people with disabilities it can be an ordeal. Kelsey Eibach is a wheelchair user who says that flying means limiting her fluid intake.
11: Yeah, it's extremely difficult especially for domestic flights in the United States. Oftentimes there is no accessible bathroom option in flight and so Most times I'm planning in advance so that I won't need to use the bathroom.
13: This week, the Transportation Department announced new rules that could help travelers like Kelsey by requiring airlines to add more accessible bathrooms on planes. New single aisle planes that are a little bit on the larger side, 125 seats or more, will have to have at least one bathroom that can fit someone in an onboard wheelchair and also an attendant to help them maneuver as needed. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says it could make a big difference
21: for wheelchair users. We're excited about the potential to make it more accessible, more convenient and more dignified for millions
13: of Americans to travel by air. And IBOC, who is an advocate for accessible travel, says travelers with disabilities are not the only ones who will benefit.
11: It's also huge for some other populations, such as parents with young children or larger set individuals that might need some extra space.
13: To be clear, these changes are not happening tomorrow or even next year, it will probably take years because the requirements apply to planes ordered a decade after the new rule goes into effect.
11: The time that it'll take to actually see this be implemented is disheartening.
13: The Department of Transportation says some
12: changes, such as grab bars and accessible faucets, call buttons and door locks, will start to appear in airline bathrooms in about three years.
25: I'm really happy that, like, there is an effort at least being taken.
12: But Corey Lee, another wheelchair user, says that because of his size and need for an assistant, even the larger bathrooms may not help
25: much. I would have to have the adult-sized changing table in the restroom and i know that that's something that like the airlines are not planning to get yet anyway
13: yeah that would take a lot of space but all of these difficulties do not stop lee from traveling
25: the longest flight that i've ever done was about 17 hours non-stop from atlanta to johannesburg south africa
13: for some time to come a flight like that will still take him endurance It's Morning Edition from NBR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Liederman. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Ian Martinez.
0: If you live in or around Brockton, join WBUR journalists for a community listening session tomorrow. We want to know what ideas and issues are on your mind. To find out more, visit WBUR.org Brockton. Sunny and low 90s today, it'll feel like about 100 with the humidity. Mid-70s and clear skies tonight, then back to around 90 tomorrow with a chance of showers and storms starting in the afternoon. The heat wave breaks on Sunday. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston and we're Coming up on
18: 8 o'clock. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR,
0: Boston's NPR news station. Former President Donald Trump is facing new accusations that he asked a staffer to delete camera footage to obstruct a federal investigation. It's Friday, July 28th. This is WB Mar's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shenoy. Coming up, following this week's coup in Niger, that country's military partnership with the U.S. is in jeopardy.
26: Legislative restrictions imposed by Congress require the United States to suspend any kind of bilateral military assistance with countries that experience coup
0: d'etats. Also this hour, the House and Senate are on radically different paths to approving annual spending bills, setting up a confrontation that could lead to another government shutdown. Plus, how San Antonio and other cities in Texas are housing people without shelter.
24: They have a 1600-bed emergency shelter that serves nearly every homeless person in the city and offers things like medical care directly on site. Sunny and humid
0: today in the 90s. It's 8:01, now the news.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A convicted teenage Michigan school shooter returns to court today to learn whether he'll be sentenced as an adult. Ethan Crumbley killed four people at Oxford High School in 2021. From member station WDET, Alex McLennan reports.
16: Prosecutors are arguing Crumbly should receive an adult sentence and not be eligible for parole. Molly Darnell is an Oxford High School teacher. She described barricading in her classroom after being shot in the arm by Ethan Crumbly.
11: I, cr- I was crouching down. Um, at that point, I had um, sent my husband a text message that um, just said, I love you, active shooter.
16: A video Crumbly recorded prior to the massacre was also played in court on Thursday. In it, the teenager said he felt sorry for the families of the people he would shoot, but justified the act and said he would enjoy doing it. For NPR News, I'm Alex McLennan in Detroit.
4: About 180 million people in the U.S. are covered by advisories or warnings of dangerous heat. Relentless heat is spreading in the Mid-Atlantic. Excessive heat warnings are posted from New Jersey to North Carolina. President Biden is blasting a Republican senator for holding up hundreds of military nominations. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, Biden's remarks came during an event commemorating the 75th anniversary of the desegregation
5: of the armed forces. President Biden criticized Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, who has been blocking every personnel move in the U.S. military that requires confirmation.
3: For the first time in more than 100 years, we don't have a sitting confirmed commandant of the Marine Corps. By the fall, we may not have a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. We may not have a military leaders for our army and navy either.
5: Tuberville has said he wants to overturn the Pentagon policy of granting leave and travel expenses for military personnel who can't obtain an abortion in the state where they are stationed. Biden said the block is harming troop morale and military readiness. Barbara Sprunt, and Pierre News. The white house the justice department is investigating how the
4: memphis police department arrests people and how its officers use force this comes after black motorist tyree nichols died following a january traffic stop five memphis officers have pleaded not guilty to beating him to death Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark says the probe is not based on a single incident.
8: We received multiple reports of officers escalating encounters with community members resulting in excessive force. There are also indications that officers may use force punitively
4: when faced with behavior they perceive to be insolent. She says initial evidence suggests that traffic enforcement in Memphis disproportionately targets black motorists.
0: You're listening. To NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoy. It's going to be another hot and humid day across the Boston area today. It's in the 70s now, and we'll get into the 90s by this afternoon. The hot and muggy weather can cause transformers, substations, and other important equipment on the electrical grid to malfunction, and that leads to power outages. WBUR's Miriam Wasser checked in with local utilities to see how they've prepared for the weather.
11: A heat wave in July is not an anomaly, and Bill Stack of Eversource says the company is prepared. Stack says Eversource has positioned crews around the state who are ready to respond to any power issues.
13: Eversource is prepared. This is not a unique situation that we're having. It's something we plan for throughout the year. And we make sure that we have the resources in place, which we do, to respond to any public safety issues first, and then also to uh, power restoration when it's safe to do
11: so. National Grid also said it's prepared for any heat or storm-related outages. Last summer, tens of thousands of people in the state lost power during heat waves. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser.
0: Massachusetts will be able to pay its bills for at least another month. Yesterday, state lawmakers approved a second temporary budget from Governor Healy. The $6 billion plan allows the state to keep running through the end of August. The measure is needed because the legislature has so far failed to agree on a permanent budget for the fiscal year. That fiscal year began four weeks ago. Most Massachusetts voters approve of high-stakes standardized testing in schools. That's according to a new poll from the conservative advocacy group Fiscal Alliance Foundation. Pollster Jim Eltringham says voters were asked if they approved of a 10th grade standardized test as part of graduation requirements.
22: Democrats support 57 percent, 75 percent on Republicans. It's 65% Sixty five percent on independence. So it's right across the board. Everyone kinda of says, Yeah, that's a that's a good idea.
0: The fiscal alliance foundation polled seven hundred and fifty likely Massachusetts voters last week. The margin of error is three and a half percent. Fishermen can no longer fish for cod in the Gulf of Maine. Fishing regulators say fishermen have caught 90 percent of the fish they're allowed to bring in there. They say the area will reopen for cod fishing on September 1st. It's 8.06.
10: WBUR supporters include the Rockefeller Foundation making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years.
0: The Red Sox will be out west tonight as they visit the San Francisco Giants. Sunny, humid, and lower 90s today. Clear overnight with temperatures in the 70s. Hot and humid again tomorrow in the 90s. We could have storms in the afternoon and evening. Sunny and less humid on Sunday with a high in the 70s. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR want some new summer
27: reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at wbur.org slash beachbooks.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm
12: Martinez in Culver City, California. Researchers got a chance to test whether Facebook makes people more partisan. We'll hear their findings in a moment, right after this story that may fire up political partisans. Iowa Republicans hold their Lincoln dinner, named for the party's first president, and the guests include several people who want to be the next Republican president. Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis will be there. Trump remains strong in Iowa polls, but state Republican leaders say he's left an opening for his rivals. NPR's White House correspondent Franco Ordonez has more.
22: Eight years ago, Donald Trump was more of an afterthought when he appeared before Iowa Republicans at the Lincoln dinner. He was far from the top draw. We can't have four more years of the kind of thinking that we've had in Washington for the last almost eight years. We can't have it. A Des Moines Register poll at the time, in 2015, found that nearly 60 percent of Republicans could never support him. Thank you. But today, he's the undisputed frontrunner for the presidential nomination, and he's really popular in Iowa. The question is no longer whether he's a viable candidate, but if he's taking that support for granted.
7: It's not a state where you're going to be successful just by airing campaign ads and hoping people turn out to vote.
22: That's Rachel Payne Caulfield, a political science professor at Drake University in Des Moines. While several rivals have been frequenting the state, Trump's visits have been more sparse, and they've mostly been bigger, less personal events. Trump has left an opening, she says, for other candidates who are visiting with voters, shaking hands and talking with them directly.
7: They expect a real connection with a presidential candidate, and that's what motivates them to Show up on a snowy night in January at a caucus
22: site. Trump has not only skipped some prominent cattle calls, he's rubbed some people the wrong way by criticizing the popular Iowa governor, Kim Reynolds, for remaining neutral in the race.
25: It did catch people's attention. A lot of people talked about it. The governor's been very popular within the party in the state.
22: Brett Barker is the chair of the Story County Republican Party in Iowa. He says some Republicans are going to be with Trump no matter what, but others have grown tired of the drama.
25: If anything, it just kind of underlined the fatigue that I'm feeling from people who are just concerned about the former president stepping on his own, on his own toes sometimes.
22: Jeff Reichman, an Iowa state senator who endorsed Trump, he went even further. I don't know if you knew this or
26: not, but I I switched my endorsement based on that statement of him being critical of the governor.
22: He says he's now supporting Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. For him, Trump just became too much.
26: How many times have we gritted our teeth and shook our heads at some things that the former president has said. And then when it was focused on our governor and I, um, it was too much. It was a bridge too far.
22: The Trump team doesn't seem to be worried, though. His spokesman says Trump is crushing the competition, pointing to a recent poll in Iowa that has Trump up 30 points. Franco Ordonez, NPR News.
13: Academic researchers got a chance to study something that many people assume is true, that social media makes us more partisan. You know the basic idea. People get fed things on Facebook, and each time they click on propaganda, computer algorithms track that and feed them more distortions, more stuff, more lies for more clicks. A feedback loop. Meta, the owner of Facebook, allowed researchers access to data to find out if this really leads to political polarization. They published findings in the journal Science and Nature. And Talia Stroud of the University of Texas at Austin is one of those who did the research. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to be here, Steve. I'm sure it's hard to get to the bottom line here, but as best you can tell, does social media like Facebook put us all in silos where we keep getting stuff that confirms our existing beliefs?
27: Well, there are nuanced findings here. And let me be clear about what we found. So first we found when we looked at political news URLs posted on the platform by US adult users at least 100 times on Facebook, we see that many political news URLs were seen and engaged with primarily by conservatives or liberals, but not both. And Mm. so that certainly speaks to polarization and fragmentation on the platform. However, when we reduced the amount of like-minded content that people were seeing on the platform among participants who gave us their permission to change their feed, we didn't find any significant effects on their levels of affective polarization.
13: I want to explain what you're saying. You're saying that conservatives are getting a different news diet, different articles than liberals. They're rarely reading exactly the same things. But when you gave them a more varied news diet, they still believed whatever they believed before.
27: Yeah, that's it. When we reduced the content from like-minded users and pages and groups on the platform over a period of three months in the 2020 election, we didn't find that it had a significant effect on their levels of polarization.
13: Now, it's interesting, Meta uh, is kind of excited about this research. They actively collaborated. They gave you access to data. As you mentioned, they uh, allowed you to change people's feeds with their permission. And they've characterized it all in a certain way. They've said that this shows that uh, it's not true, that their algorithms drive polarization. Are they correct to say that their algorithms do not drive polarization?
27: You know, I think that the research that we published on ideological segregation suggests that there is ideological segregation on the platform and that based on the political news URLs that people are sharing, there are differences in what news uh, is being consumed by liberal and conservative audiences on the platform. Now, it is correct to say that in the experiment that we did on like-minded sources, that didn't affect political polarization, nor did our research where we removed reshared content or where we switched people's feeds from the standard Facebook feed and Instagram feed to a chronological feed where the most recent content appeared first. So I think there's a bit of a mixed bag here in terms of the relationship between platforms and the content that people see and the way they react.
13: I wonder if there's a question about intensity here. It's not that you maybe were a liberal and suddenly became conservative because you saw some (laughs) Facebook posts or the reverse. But I wonder if because of the nature of algorithms feeding you more and more stuff to which you're already predisposed, People just feel more intensely partisan, have a more intense dislike for the other side because they are continually being told through the algorithm that the other person is evil and terrible and eat children or whatever they're being told.
27: That's one thing that we did analyze with the idea of affective polarization, because that's really trying to get at how do you feel about members of your own party and members of the other party? And are you feeling more intense toward the other side and more negative toward them and more positive toward your own side? In these studies, when we did these experiments, we don't find that those levels increased.
13: Oh, that's really interesting. So uh, I've got just about 10 seconds. I'm curious if you use Facebook much yourself.
27: (laughs) I do use Facebook.
13: Okay. do you find it useful?
27: Uh, You know, I, I think there definitely are uses for Facebook, such as keeping up with friends and family. But I think this research really leads people to think, or I hope it leads people to think about what the algorithm is surfacing for them and who they're connected with on the platform.
13: Just be conscious that you're being manipulated. Talia Stroud, thanks so much. Thank you. She's a professor at the University of Texas at Austin.
12: In the last decade, the number of people who are homeless in California has soared, rising more than 40 percent. Meanwhile, in Texas, they're seeing the opposite trend, with homelessness dropping by nearly a third. California leaders have been making trips to Texas to see what they can learn from the Lone Star State's approach. And Marisa Kendall, who reports on homelessness in California for CalMatters, recently traveled to Texas herself to report on what they're doing differently. Marisa, so these trends are, are really, really different on opposite ends. What's happening?
24: Yeah, so a big factor is the huge discrepancy between the housing markets in California and Texas. Uh, According to Zillow, the median rent for a one bedroom in California is $2,200. In Texas, that's only $1,200. Texas also builds more. Uh, The state permitted twice as many houses as California last year even though California has 9 million more people. A lot of that has to do with factors that are really big and really hard to change, like California's zoning laws, higher building costs, environmental regulations. But there are some smaller things that certain Texas cities are doing that California potentially could copy. Ooh, such as what? So I visited three cities, Houston, Austin, and San Antonio, which are the three cities getting the most interest from California leaders. In Houston, they are really focusing on permanent housing instead of putting any money into temporary shelter. In Austin, they have a giant 51-acre tiny home village that offers permanent housing to several hundred formerly homeless people. And it has all of these really surprising amenities like a fishing pond and a ceramic studio. San Antonio takes a really different approach. They have a 1600-bed emergency shelter that serves nearly every homeless person in the city and offers things like medical care directly on site.
12: Okay, so those are some options on Solutions. California, though, can't be looking to model everything Texas is doing.
24: That's correct. So Texas does take a much more punitive approach than California is comfortable with. Public camping's illegal statewide in Texas. And activists say rather than helping to solve the problem, what that does is in cities like Austin, it pushes unhoused people out of sight into wooded areas where they're cut off from the services they need. In California, on the other hand, there's a court ruling that mostly prohibits cities from clearing encampments unless they have a shelter bed to offer everyone. Another issue is in Houston, where they focus so much on permanent housing, they neglect temporary shelter. So I spoke with a woman named Rachel Gonzalez, who has been waiting months for a housing placement. And in the meantime, she's sleeping on the sidewalk without even a tent, because there's just not enough shelter beds and the police won't let her set up a permanent camp.
8: You got to think day by day. You can't think about tomorrow, because if you think about tomorrow, think about a week from now, you'll actually go
12: crazy. Yeah, that sounds rough. Um, Marisa, do do people in California think that some of what Texas is doing could actually help?
24: Yeah, so um, some of the things that Texas is doing actually already have influenced California policy. Uh, There's already two tiny home villages in California that are modeled off of what Austin's doing. And I spoke with two additional groups who are interested in doing the same thing. They just don't have the funding yet. On their own, none of these things are likely to actually solve homelessness in California, but some leaders do think they could help make a dent.
12: All right, that's Marisa Kendall with Cal Matters. Marisa, thanks. You're welcome. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Friday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, differences between House and Senate annual spending bills are raising concerns that lawmakers won't be able to meet a September 30th deadline to fund the government, risking a partial shutdown. It's eight nineteen. Turn your old
26: car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. And Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. Go EndlessEnergy.com or 775-END-LESS.
20: On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, we gave the Southwest some advice in
23: dealing with the record heat.
26: Maybe, Phoenix, you should not have named your city after a bird most famous for bursting into flames.
23: I'm Karen Chi, in for Peter
20: Sagal. Join us for more chit-chat about the weather with our guest, actor-director Randall Park,
0: on this week's news quiz from NPR.
26: Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR.
0: A heads up for T-Riders this weekend. Starting tomorrow, the Haymarket station will be closed on the Orange and Green Lines. Orange Line trains will pass through the station without stopping. The Green Line will suspend service between Government Center and North Station. Riders are being told to walk between those stations. The closure will last until August 9th. Sunny and humid today with a high of 92, along with the heat. State environmental officials say there's an air quality advisory in place for the Cape and South Coast. It cools only to the mid-70s tonight, then tomorrow around 90 and humid again. Showers and thunderstorms are likely in the afternoon and evening. Relief from the heat finally comes on Sunday. We'll have highs only in the upper 70s under mostly sunny skies. Right now it's 78 degrees in Boston. Support
18: for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm. Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org, And from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR.
13: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. If you get your kicks on Route 66, the famous road from Chicago to Los Angeles, you pass through Arizona, and along the way, you will see a crumbling old gas station. It's a century old, and to residents, it's more than a derelict building. That gas station was a gathering place for people of the Wallapai Nation. Here's Melissa Sivini of member station KNAU.
5: What remains of the Osterman gas station sits between historic Route 66 and the railroad tracks. Some 80 trains a day sound their horns as they pass the tiny town of Peach Springs. But inside the building, it's quiet. Too quiet, says Wallapie tribal member Loretta Jackson Kelly. She remembers a time when the lure of cold soda pop and a busy Greyhound bus stop made this the place to be.
8: Everybody would run, you know, come here to meet their relatives, sending somebody off, everybody would come and, you know, say goodbye.
5: When the interstate bypassed Peach Springs in the 1980s, businesses along the Mother Road began to fade. Ostermans closed in 2005 and the building fell into disrepair. Three years ago, a storm blew off the roof and felled the tree that shaded the bus stop.
8: I would have never imagined myself sitting here under this open roof. You know, it breaks my heart when I see this.
5: This year, the National Trust for Historic Preservation named the gas station as one of 11 most endangered historic places in the country. Archivist Sean Evans serves on the board of a local group dedicated to preserving the rich history of Route 66.
16: Yeah, we lost some of the weird, funky motels and the gas stations and things like that. And what did we get? We got box stores. You know, you just see the chains. It could be anywhere. The Osterman tells you, you're
5: in
15: Peach Springs.
5: Evans says for tourists, Route 66 is about the promise of travel and wide open spaces. But for the wallapi, it's literally Main Street, the beating heart of their community. And like Main Streets everywhere, it's fading.
16: In Seligman and in Ash Fork and, and all across the road, every town has a place like the Osterman that kind of sits there and reminds you every day that your history is going away and hey, you need to do something about it.
5: That's just what Kevin Davidson is working on. He's the director of the Wallapai Nation's planning department, which is raising funds to save Ostermans.
15: People have been picking on me for years to get this thing fixed. Now the building's in the emergency room, and now it's gonna get fixed.
5: (laughs) Davidson is collecting the fallen bricks to salvage. Back in the 1920s, they were stamped out of a kit from the Sears catalog. He unchains the door and goes outside to look at the vintage gas pumps, forever fixed at 99 cents a gallon.
16: And these, again, only have two digits, so you can't go to a dollar.
5: He estimates it'll take close to a million dollars to repair and reopen Ostermans. The Wallapai tribe has raised nearly half that from insurance money and grants. The building's future is wide open for now. It might become a museum, business incubator, coffee shop, artist gallery, or even a gas station again, this time with electric chargers out front. For NPR News, I'm Melissa Sivany.
13: It's Friday, which is when we hear from StoryCorps. Stephen Quant is an animal welfare worker in New York City.
15: When I was a gay teenager in the 70s, I had no vision of a future. No picket fence, no house, no romantic life, nothing. And I realized that what I'm doing with these animals is trying to find them their future.
13: You see, Stephen Quant cares for abandoned animals in disaster zones around the world. At StoryCorps, he recalled a 2019 trip to Ukraine and the site of the Chernobyl nuclear accident.
15: At the time of the accident, which was in 1986, there was an order to evacuate the people. They had less than an hour to get ready to go. And they had to leave their animals behind. And then the military was directed to kill the dogs. But many of them lived. And for 35 years, they have been breeding, living and dying in the forests around Chernobyl. So we went there and provided care for the dogs. Every single night, a huge group of dogs would come out of the forest. They would gather in the town square and howl collectively. And in this immense radioactive forest, it turns out there are squatters. At the time of the accident, they were evacuated, but they moved back in and wouldn't leave. On the last day that I was there, our translator comes up to me and she points at this old man. And she says, did you give him a fridge magnet and a bottle opener yesterday? And I was like, yeah, I did. I brought them specifically to give out. We were told we could give out little gifts. Nice, you know, I Heart New York bottle opener. And she motioned me over and he started talking. And she started translating. He said that he was what was called a Chernobyl liquidator. One of the guys who fought the fire in the core at the time of the accident. And then he pulled out this old worn medal commemorating his valor. He wanted to give me his medal for helping the dogs. I said, No, I can't accept it. And she said, You have to. He will be insulted if you don't. So I had to take it. And I'm holding his medal that I don't deserve, knowing full well the measure of his sacrifice. But I never learned his name, and I never saw him again. I think about him, and for all I know, he's still there in that radioactive forest with the dogs.
13: Stephen Quant in New York City. The interview is archived at the Library of Congress.
18: Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, featuring the 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. With standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and all-terrain tires, it's designed for paths not yet taken. Learn more at Subaru.com Wilderness. And from Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later. Because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at
0: DignityMemorial.com.
13: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Prosecutors in Michigan are arguing that a teenager who killed four students at his high school in 2021 should receive a life sentence. It's 829. WBUR's City Space becomes an ice cream parlor for one night on Monday, August 7th. Come for a Sunday and a conversation about ice cream with local makers. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events.
3: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden is expected to sign an executive order today shifting responsibility for who makes decisions on the prosecution of serious crimes in the U.S. military. They include sexual assault. The order would move that authority from the commanders of alleged victims to independent military attorneys. The change was recommended by an independent review commission on sexual assault set up by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. The State Department is advising Americans to leave Haiti, including non-emergency government personnel and their families. NPR's John Stempin says the State Department cites civil unrest, gang violence and
14: crime. In addition to the evacuations of American government employees and dependents, the State Department warned all Americans to leave by private or commercial carriers as soon as practical. The government warns Americans of Port-au-Prince to monitor the news and only leave when they feel it is safe. Officials cite brutal kidnappings, robberies, carjackings, failing security, health care, and infrastructure, and a cholera outbreak as reasons to leave. Haiti is in leaderless chaos since the assassination of President Jovenel Moise two years ago. John Stempin, NPR News, Washington.
3: Heat warnings and advisories remain in effect in about two dozen states. This is NPR News.
14: From
0: WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. It's going to be another hot and humid day today. Temperatures will be around 90, and it'll feel even hotter than that. A heat advisory is in effect, which means people with underlying health conditions could have problems. WBOR's Martha Biebinger reports on new alerts that aim to get warnings about the heat to vulnerable patients.
20: The first alert went out on June 1st because even temps in the low 80s can be dangerous for Bostonians who aren't prepared for heat. The alerts asked clinicians to prioritize heat planning with higher risk patients. For Deidre Alessio, a nurse at Cambridge Health Alliance, That's often patients who cannot afford air conditioning or who don't have stable housing.
4: Every new avenue leads to many, many more questions and ideas about how I can be better prepared, how I can help my patients better prepared.
20: These alerts are a pilot project from researchers at Harvard.
4: They come with tips about
20: how to stay safe during heat. But there's no directory for cooling centers in each municipality, and money to help with the cost of A.C. is limited. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: There will be kickoff events today in Boston for the NAACP National Convention. One that's open to the public is called the Hub Experience. Boston NAACP President Tanisha Sullivan describes it as a mix of workshops, panel discussions, and a job fair.
24: They'll have the opportunity to uh, participate in a career summit, which is taking place on Saturday between 1 and 5, to meet with local companies that are hiring.
0: The Hub experience is taking place at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Vice President Kamala Harris will be in town tomorrow to give the convention's keynote address. Acton is giving money to some families to help cover child care costs. Town officials say the income-based program will provide a $3,000 grants to families who need care for children ages 13 and under. Acton has allocated $40,000 for the program, which is being paid for by federal pandemic relief funds. The grants will be awarded on a first-come, first-served basis. It's 833. We're funded by
17: you, our listeners, and by Bionova Scientific, GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure.
0: The Red Sox begin a week-long West Coast road trip tonight. They'll play the San Francisco Giants. The Sox have won 15 of their last 20 games. It'll be sunny with a high of 92 today, with high humidity adding to dangerous conditions. Tonight we'll have clear skies and lows in the mid-70s. Tomorrow around 90 with clouds gathering throughout the day there's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms beginning in the afternoon and into the evening sunday we finally get relief we'll have a high of only 78. it'll be mostly sunny with a slight chance of afternoon storms right now it's 79 degrees in boston you're with wbur
18: support for npr comes from this station and from britbox with the new season of silent witness Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR.
12: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
13: And I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. Lawmakers have left Washington and will not be back until September.
12: At which point the country will, once again, have just a few weeks to reach a deal to avoid a government shutdown. And some hardline House
13: Republicans say the party should be willing to do just that. For example, Congressman Bob Good of Virginia speaking outside the Capitol this week.
15: What would happen if Republicans, for
25: once, stared down the Democrats and were the ones who refused to cave and to betray the American people and the trust they put in us when they gave us a majority? So we don't fear a government shutdown.
13: NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is covering this. Sue, good morning. Hey, Steve. I feel we need to clarify this for people because Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden finalized a budget deal just
7: last month, didn't they? They absolutely did. They reached a bipartisan agreement in order to avoid a debt default. And part of that deal was to set government spending targets for the next two years with the intent of avoiding a government shutdown. Biden signed that bill into law back in early June, but it really angered the right wing of the party. And within days, McCarthy backed away from the terms of the deal. He said the House would pass their annual 12 spending bills at lower levels than they had agreed to in the deal. And that is exactly what they've done. The problem, Stephen, there's a lot of problems, is that the Senate has done the exact opposite. They upheld the terms of the deal. By yesterday, they had passed all 12 of their bills out of committee. They passed them with near-unanimous support from Democrats and Republicans. And they didn't include any controversial add-ons, often referred to as poison pills, on Capitol Hill in their bills that they will also have to negotiate with the House in the fall. Oh, wait.
13: Did the House then add a bunch of poison pills in addition to lower spending?
7: A lot of them and in all 12 bills. And that's part of what's going to make this this round of shutdown negotiations so complicated, it's not just a disagreement about how much money to spend. There's something called the, quote, anti-woke caucus in the House. There's about two dozen Republicans in it, and they lobbied really hard to put policy riders in the appropriations bills to eliminate any money for things that they say promote far-left ideology on race and gender. One example of this, they requested eliminating $3 million in funding for the Congressional Office of Diversity and Inclusion, and they were successful. Republicans stripped that money from their bill. There's also a lot of abortion-related provisions in many bills that are going to be very contentious to negotiate with Democrats. There's also been a lot of really personal contentious moments among lawmakers during the process of passing these bills. Just last week at a hearing, Republicans moved to eliminate funding for three LGBTQ centers that were located in three Democrats' congressional districts. That move prompted Wisconsin Democratic Congressman Mark Pocan, he is openly gay himself, to accuse Republicans of anti-gay bigotry. But Republicans ultimately were successful in removing those provisions from the bill.
13: I'm thinking about the complexities here. McCarthy, because his majority is so narrow, may need some Democrats to go along, which means he would have to get rid of some of these provisions. But he also has some people in his
7: own caucus who may want him out of his job. He's backed himself into a very difficult negotiating position. He's going to both have to try to not shut down the government to make his moderate members look reasonable and like they can govern and win re-election. He's got to keep his conservatives happy so they don't try to throw him out. And he's got to try to pass a bill that can pass both the Democratic Senate and be signed by President Biden into law. It's a really difficult position. And that's why no one I spoke to this week was confident that a shutdown could be avoided in late September.
13: Just a reminder, McCarthy really wanted this job. It's a job he wanted. Susan, thanks so much much really appreciate it. You're welcome. Enter Susan Davis.
12: The Biden administration is condemning a power grab by military officers in the West African nation of Niger that uh, removed the country's democratically elected president from power. Niger plays an important role in the U.S.'s counterterrorism operations in the region. Over a thousand active duty American troops are there. Now, the future of that relationship is unclear. To hear more about the ties between the U.S. and Niger's militaries, we called Cameron Hudson. He's a senior associate for the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Cameron, what is is the strategic importance of the US's relationship with Niger
26: well it's twofold first the United States maintains two drone bases in the country and from those bases we are able to collect intelligence over a wide swath of of the Sahel and Eastern Africa all the way from Sudan to Mali north to uh, Libya and south to Nigeria so it's a platform for the United States for intelligence collection secondarily We are actively involved in the fight against terrorism with Nigerian forces. There has been uh, an encroachment of ISIS and al-Qaeda-affiliated offshoots in the region. You've heard about coups in Mali and Burkina Faso, you know, prompted by the terrorist threat there. And so we are, you know, in a twofold fight with the Nigerians. We rely on them for our intelligence collection and helping them on the ground.
12: Does the U.S. train their military?
26: yes absolutely we are in a train and assist program since 2017 when four american service members were killed in niger uh on their own uh ct counterterrorism patrol operation we have stepped back from what they called the trigger pulling part of the operations and we are now in an advise and assist capacity where we are training up uh elements of the nigerian special forces and their military to to face these terrorist threats on their own
12: so it sounds like both sides are getting a lot out of this arrangement
26: Absolutely. No, absolutely. Washington is able to, again, uh, have drones over the civil war in Sudan, over uh, Libya, over Boko Haram in Nigeria. This is a platform in Central Africa that the United States has become to rely on for all of its counterterrorism operations and all of its intelligence gathering in the region.
12: So let's just say if um, because of all this U.S. influence in Niger wanes, who might step in to fill that void?
26: Well, it's a question. I think that uh, the Nigerians themselves don't have the capacity to continue this counterterrorism fight On their own they simply aren't capable enough to to face down these terrorist threats we have seen in Mali for example uh, that the Malian authorities when they uh, kicked out the French European uh, security contingent there they invited in the Wagner group we have not seen any indications uh, yet that Niger is planning uh, to do the same but I think it's it's hard to determine whether or not or how long they can hold out against the encroachment of these terrorist forces coming into their country and frankly approaching their Capital in very long time without any outside assistance coming in.
13: The Biden
12: administration is hesitant to call what's happened there a coup. Can you tell us why?
26: Well, the coup is a very loaded legal term in uh, in diplomacy, and what happens when the State Department declares a military coup is is it triggers uh, congressional legislation that requires us to suspend immediately uh, military assistance uh, to those countries and also other forms of assistance. So. It is a reflection of our values, of our democratic values, but it also imperils some of our hard security interests on the ground. And I think when the State Department hesitates in doing that, what it's trying to do is just keep its options open so that we can dial back our security assistance, perhaps on a temporary measure in the hopes of being able to restore democracy in the country or some semblance of democracy, civilian rule, and so that we can keep that security assistance going. So I think that's what the Biden administration is doing right now is just keeping all its options open.
12: Cameron Hudson is a senior associate for the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Cameron, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News.
0: Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report hears from an MIT professor on research that shows the patchwork American health care system has created gaps in coverage that require a sweeping overhaul to address. It's going to be another steamy summer day today. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says the heat will break by the end of the weekend.
21: Well, it's going to be hotter and more humid than yesterday. Highs climb into the mid-90s this afternoon. Oppressive humidity. The heat index right around 100. Heat advisories in place. Scattered thunder develops during the afternoon, lingering into the evening. Some of the storms could become severe, so be aware and prep to see.
0: Now in business news, Wilmington-based Analog Devices is planning a $1 billion expansion in Oregon. The semiconductor company says the investment will nearly double the manufacturing it does at the site. It'll also bring hundreds of new jobs to Oregon. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is joining more than 20 other state AGs in urging a judge to reject a legal settlement with 3M. The manufacturer wants to pay $10 billion for contaminating water systems with the forever chemical known as PFAS. The group says the settlement doesn't provide enough relief and lets 3M off too easily. 3M defends the settlement deal, saying it'll help communities. Workers at a Starbucks in Beverly are unionizing. Baristas there say they want better pay and working conditions along with consistent schedules. The location is one of more than a dozen in the state to try and join a union. It's 844.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Providing businesses with cyber threat security designed to keep devices protected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. And Rhodes Scholar creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org
21: learning.
0: Now let's try again and get the forecast from WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyce.
21: No storms to worry about today, but it will be hot again. Heat advisories remain in effect through tomorrow evening. We'll be in the low 90s this afternoon with a heat index in the middle 90s thanks to the humidity. Tomorrow, we'll make a run at 90 by midday, and if we hit it, that would make this an official heat wave. Scattered thunderstorms develop during the afternoon, tomorrow lingering into the early evening. A few storms could be on the stronger side. Relief on Sunday, though, from the humidity, and will be much cooler, too, with highs in the mid-70s and a threat for a quick-passing shower.
0: Right now, it's 79 degrees in Boston.
21: It's Morning Edition from
12: NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Ian Martinez. A debate over whether a juvenile who commits a heinous crime should be sentenced to life without parole is at the center of a hearing underway right now in a Michigan courtroom. It centers around a mass shooting that occurred in November of 2021 at Oxford High School in suburban Detroit. That's when a teenager shot and killed four of his classmates and wounded seven other people, including a teacher. The gunman, Ethan Crumley, was 15 at the time, and shortly after the shooting, he pleaded Guilty to terrorism, murder, and several other charges. WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter has been following the case. Quinn, so, okay, it's typical for a hearing to be held before someone who is either found guilty or pleads guilty to a crime is sentenced. This proceeding, called a Miller hearing, is uh, somewhat different. How so?
28: Well, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that a juvenile cannot automatically be sentenced to life in prison without the chance for parole. That used to happen in some states, including Michigan. But now the High Court says that can only happen in rare cases. Michigan does not have the death penalty. And courts here only consider life without parole for a juvenile who committed a homicide. The prosecutors must also prove that the youth is irreparably corrupt and incapable of rehabilitation. So is that what
12: the prosecutors are arguing, that the defendant is incapable of rehabilitation?
28: Yes. In her opening statement at the hearing, Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald said Ethan Crumbly fits that description. In part, she says, because he meticulously planned the shooting, methodically carried it out, and decided in advance he would not kill himself during the shooting
11: and he researched response times to make sure that he surrendered before the police arrived. He he stayed alive because he wanted to witness the suffering he created. When the United States Supreme Court and the Michigan Supreme Court talk about the rare case and the defendant, this is the one, Your Honor.
28: And witnesses described in graphic detail how the shooting occurred and that Crumbly took pleasure from injuring even small animals. They said in prison earlier this year, Crumbly tried to access Internet sites showing violent video, allegedly saying he just could not help himself.
12: Okay, now the, the defense will have its, its time to counter those arguments, but first, uh, what's it been like in the courtroom?
28: Emotional, as you might imagine, the prosecution showed pictures and security video of the shooting while parents of some of the victims wept in the courtroom. Crumbly kept his head down the entire time.
12: Now, the defendant is a juvenile, but uh, during sentencing hearings, defendants can speak. Is that likely to happen here?
28: Maybe. The defense has said it's possible, but prosecutors wanted to make sure the courtroom heard Crumbly's plans in his own voice, and they played a bit of a video he recorded on his phone the day before the shooting.
16: I understand my
12: consequences. I understand that people who put me in prison for this. So if he understood that he would be going to prison, do we know what the defense plans to say?
28: Yeah, they have experts set to testify that 15-year-old brains are not fully developed and are capable of change. And the defense has been targeting Crumbly's parents, Jennifer and James Crumbly, alleging they ignored signs their son was troubled, they didn't get mental health care for him. Instead, they bought him the handgun used in the shooting. And they've been charged with involuntary manslaughter. That's
12: WDET's Quinn Kleinfelter. Thanks a lot.
28: You're welcome.
13: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. Anime Martinez.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest from Kyiv on Ukraine's military offensive, plus new research that shows we continue to have an active imagination even as we get older. It's 849.
23: When Thomas Green went in for surgery to relieve pain in his legs, he was expecting it to be covered by his insurance. But a mix-up by the provider left him and his wife with a big bill.
19: My initial response was, this is impossible, so something's wrong. I'm Juana
23: Summers, the fight to fix those charges. On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen
17: today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Former President Donald Trump will face new charges after officials say he asked an employee to delete security footage during a federal investigation into mishandled classified documents. Singapore has executed someone for the first time in nearly two decades for drug trafficking charges, and the Emmy Awards have been postponed due to strikes from writers and actors unions. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in
0: each and every day goddardhouse.org hot and humid today it'll be sunny and in the low 70s sorry 90s there's a heat advisory in effect through tomorrow tonight mid 70s that is 70s this time and clear skies saturday around 90 and humid again with a chance of storms in the afternoon and evening relief comes on sunday it'll only be in the upper 70s and we'll have a mix of sun and clouds right now it's 79 degrees in boston An MIT
17: economist has analyzed healthcare in America and says, here's all you do. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, helping provide a smarter, easier way to get the supplies businesses need to thrive. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairytale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. First, Ford Motor Company
25: reported strong quarterly results late yesterday, yet Ford also says it's ratcheting back electric vehicle production targets. The company says it now expects to be building 600,000 EVs a year globally by 2024 instead of this year. Ford had also been shooting for 2 million EVs by 2026, but the company says it now doesn't know when it'll hit that milestone given slower adoption from buyers. Yet this week, Ford rival General Motors said it will no longer cancel the small, cheaper EV, the Chevy Bolt. Sales are strong. Customers loyal. GM had been pushing higher-end electrics. Marketplace's Henry Epp reports. The Chevy Bolt hasn't had
6: the smoothest ride. When it was introduced in 2017, electric vehicles made up a much smaller segment of car sales. Then it faced recalls because its batteries kept catching on fire. But now it's selling really well. The current generation bolts are flying off the dealer lots. Chris Harto is a senior policy analyst at Consumer Reports. Because they're really providing, you know, a strong value proposition for consumers. In other words, they're inexpensive, relatively. A new Bolt will set you back about $26,000. That's the cheapest new EV you can buy, and it's eligible for a federal tax credit. Sam Fiorani with Auto Forecast Solutions says keeping the Bolt around opens the company to more customers. To young buyers,
12: to people who wouldn't have looked at General Motors otherwise, and especially wouldn't have looked at their EVs because they couldn't afford a $60,000 or $70,000 vehicle.
6: And making electric vehicles more affordable is necessary, he says, if EVs are going to succeed in
25: the long term. I'm Henry App for Marketplace. And there's more evidence today that inflation is cooling. The Federal Reserve's preferred gauge of inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, went up just two-tenths of a percent in June. Annualized, that's three percent, down from 3.8 percent a month earlier. On this news, the 10-year interest rate ducked back below four percent. S&P futures are up tenths percent NASDAQ futures up 1.1%. Also today here, a law will soon let employers double your money when you pay student loans back. Stream this from Marketplace.org if you miss it on the
17: air today. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Glassdoor. Beyond workplace reviews, Glassdoor now offers anonymous talk about careers, salaries, and work life. Professionals swap stories with coworkers and industry insiders who've been there, done that. Find your work, people, on the new Glassdoor app. And by Indeed, a streamlined hiring solution. Indeed helps businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Learn more at indeed.com slash hire. And by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides ChatGPT GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. Learn more at C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI.
25: An MIT econ professor and MacArthur Genius Grant winner thinks she knows what fixes healthcare in America. Amy Finkelstein is co author of a new book called We've Got You Covered. Welcome. Thanks
8: so much for having me.
25: Gee whiz, we ended up with this healthcare system with these flaws after such exquisite planning and careful identification of the objectives of America's healthcare system, he said ironically.
8: <laughs> yeah, the American healthcare system was never. Deliberately designed or constructed, it's been put together piecemeal patchwork as particular issues arose or particular political opportunities presented themselves. Whenever you have patches, you're going to have gaps at the seams.
25: So what to do is the overall question here, but seeking answers, you looked at what other countries do.
8: We started actually from just first principles of what's the problem we're trying to solve and what's the solution to that problem. We ended up where every other high-income country is. It turns out the answer is really simple. What every other high-income country does is have universal basic coverage with the ability to buy additional supplemental coverage for people who can afford and want more than that basic coverage.
25: So, I mean, you're talking about like Medicare for all, but like even more so.
8: So, no, Medicare for all is a vacuous slogan that means different things to different people. Medicare is actually a pretty crummy insurance product. It leaves people exposed to unlimited out-of-pocket medical expenses. We'd get rid of that. On the other hand, we'd be a lot more basic than the current Medicare program. The current Medicare program, one of the reasons costs are so out of control in it is that it puts no guardrails on what patients or physicians can do. They can order any tests they want, any procedure, go to any doctor they want at any time. Our policy would be much more basic, and that's where the supplemental coverage would come in for those who can afford it.
25: By the way, you mentioned we wouldn't pay anything for a service. You know, I talked to all these healthcare care experts. They're always going on about the importance of copays, so we don't overburden the medical system with our trivial ailments.
8: It is true that when patients don't have to pay anything for their medical care, they use a lot more medical care. When we look at all the other high-income countries, which of course all have universal coverage already and have followed the advice of generations of economists and introduced or increased those patient payments into their basic coverage plans, they've simultaneously introduced and layered on Lots of exceptions so that, you know, people don't have to pay those copays if they're sufficiently poor or sufficiently old or sufficiently young or sufficiently sick. So at the end of the day, they create so many exceptions that almost no one pays those copays. And the reason they have to create those exceptions is because there always will be people who can't afford $5 for prescription drugs or $20 for a doctor visit.
25: I mean, can the country afford the system that you and your co-author envision?
8: we're already paying as taxpayers for universal coverage. We are just not getting it. The taxpayer portion of our healthcare spending is already as large as the public financing in other countries that's paying for universal coverage. So we might choose if and when our plan gets implemented to raise taxes if we wanna make the basic plan more generous, but we can afford basic universal automatic coverage without raising taxes.
25: MIT economics professor Amy Finkelstein, along with Laron Inov, their new book is called We've Got You Covered Rebooting American Healthcare. Professor, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, David. Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media.
0: Sunny and low 90s today. It'll feel like about 100 with the humidity. Mid-70s and clear skies tonight, then back to around 90 tomorrow with a chance of showers and storms starting in the afternoon. The heat wave breaks and on Sunday we'll have mostly sunny skies and temperatures only in the mid-70s. Right now it's 79 degrees in Boston. The BBC is coming up next.
12: I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and
2: 89.1
12: WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.